still continuing with the Unity in Christ series that we have been preaching. This will be covering the first three chapters. Um, we will get through that before the Christmas season comes upon us, and then we'll turn our attention to that. Uh, this morning, or rather last week, we, we talked about the message of the cross. Uh, it's about the fact that the world looks at that and sees that it's foolish. But Paul continues in his thought to turn his attention not, not completely away from the message of the cross. He still is sticking with the cross, but now he's focusing our attention on the people, the people of the cross, those who follow after the cross, who those people are. And I want you to see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 26, and we'll go to the end of the chapter, verse 31. And if you're able to stand with me, I'd ask you to do so simply out of reverence for the reading of the Lord's Word. I'm going to preach and explain things to you as best I can, but this is as pure the Word of God as we can get, just to hear it from God Himself. Here's what He says. It's what Paul's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For ye, seeing your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Would you pray with me now? Lord, please bless the reading of your word. Please bless the hearers. Help us to not simply be hearers of your word, but to be doers. Transform our hearts and our minds and our bodies so that we will obey your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This uh, letter that Paul is writing is to the church at Corinth. If you read the whole letter, the first Corinthians, and go into second Corinthians, you will see a church that is absolutely caught up with which church leaders they're going to get behind. We preached about that a few weeks ago in verse 10 following. They're trying to figure out what the best gift is. They wanted to have the best spiritual gift. They wanted to be known as the people who had the best spiritual gift. They wanted to have the best praise. Remind me of, it reminded me of when Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's, he's made it plain to his disciples he's going to die for their sins, but there's still a couple of the disciples there squabbling and saying, Jesus, which one of us is going to be the greatest? And you're sitting there thinking, what in the world's wrong with you folks? You're focused on the wrong thing. These people were worried more about what the, church, rather what the city of Corinth around them thought about them. They were more concerned with what the wealthy and the culture-making people around them were concerned with. They literally, if it were in today's world, they would care more about what the entertainment industry, what the internet, what the television, what the authors, what the schools and universities thought about them than they really cared about what what they were supposed to be. And in doing so, they were completely missing the beauty, the value and the power of who they were and what they had in Jesus Christ. Paul says that, I think it's in verse 17. Yes, it's in verse 17, where he 
says, listen, by doing this, you're literally undermining, you're actually undermining the very message that you say you believe. What you say you believe, you are actually doing the opposite of it by caring about all these other things. I wish this was something that was just 2,000 years ago in a city called Corinth on the other side of the world. But I think that Christians in 2021, 2,000 years later, Christians in Ellisboro Baptist Church are prone to do exactly the same thing. We have crosses on our steeple. I can even see two in the back of the church. You know, they're, they're all over. We've got them everywhere. We've got crosses. Some of you carry them as around your neck. You wear a cross or you might wear a t-shirt or maybe in your homes you have a cross that decorates your wall. We do that. These are emblems of suffering and shame, the Bible, or rather that, that hymn says. Emblems of suffering and shame. We carry these crosses around with us. These are emblems that the world standard says that is foolish what you're carrying around. It would be literally exactly like us walking around with a guillotine. is a picture of a guillotine or a, an electric chair or a, a, the syringe that they put into the, 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 the criminals when they, they, they kill them by lethal injection. It's literally carrying around a torture instrument. We're saying we're carrying it around this world. They, 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 they should look at that, and the Bible says that that is a foolish, a, a, an upsetting message. But Christians today, when we have these crosses everywhere and we have them on us, and again, I'm not trying to shame you into stop wearing your cross. Don't get that. That's not the message I'm trying to give you. I'm just saying we carry those around with us. And what we're trying to do, whether we mean to or not, in this culture, we're, we're taking this, this message of the cross, which is supposed to be a message of a Savior who weakly and humbly and painfully bled and died for all sinners. We want people to see that, and they want, we want them to see that cross and see cool, dynamic, powerful people. People that if you get with us, we'll have a good time together. That you just need to join us and have fun. That's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is exactly what it is. It is a torture instrument. It is something that our Savior was nailed to. Do you understand what I'm saying? That there was nailed piercing His flesh, nailing Him to that. This cross that we carry, and rightly so as Christians, we're identified as the cross, but it should not. We are not to co-opt this to get it to be people, something that the world fears about. Because what the world sees and what they should see is the Savior nailed to that cross. See, we're not called, we're not simply called to believe in the message of the foolish cross. We are called to be people who are actually friends by it, that are identified with it. We are church. We are people of the cross. And Paul says in this passage that the people of the cross are, first of all, inherently foolish people. And you say, well, Matthew, I thought you wanted to try to talk to us about maybe being the pastor here and all that, and you're trying to call us idiots. I, I understand what you're saying, but I'm just on the authority of God's Word. I am calling you foolish people if you're people of the cross. Look at what he says in verse 26. Look what he says. See, you're calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He goes on to explain that you're not wise, you're actually foolish. 
You're not mighty. You're actually weak. You're not noble. You are actually insignificant. In fact, get down. I think it's in verse 28 where he says that you're despised. You're, you're hated. You're things that are not. You're nobody. If you are a follower of Christ, if you're people of the cross, you are literally foolish, weak, and insignificant. But here's the good news. Before you get mad and come up here and try to hit me, here's the good news. That's the kind of people Jesus came to save. That's exactly who He came for. Jesus says in Luke 19.10 that He came to seek and to save those that are lost. That's who He came for. Those are the kind of people He came for. You see, Jesus specializes in hopeless causes. That's the kind of people He specializes in. In fact, I want you to know that if that's offensive to you, you say, well, you know what? I'm a pretty good guy. I, I don't need all that stuff of, you know, I, I've, got, I've got some things figured out. I'd like to have Jesus on top of my good life. Jesus on top of my all figured out life. If that's who you are, if that's offensive that you have to be nothing, I'm just going to tell you, Jesus is of no help to you. Jesus even says in Mark chapter 2, He says that if you are whole, if you are well, if you are complete, if you've got it all together, you don't need a doctor. Why would you, walking, talking, feeling good, about ready to go eat some supper, if you're feeling good, why would you walk into an emergency room? It's not until you've got a broken leg or something's wrong with you. You can't get around. You can't get out of bed. That's when you need a doctor. And the same thing goes. He says that I do not come, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Until we realize that we are weak and foolish, and insignificant. The Lord cannot, will not, has chosen not to help us. He will not. That is not who He comes after. Will you see yourself, church, Ellisburg Church, will you see yourself as a church, as hopeless, apart from Jesus? There's some of you sitting here and say, well, Matthew, you didn't have to tell me I was nothing because I already think I'm nothing. There's probably a couple of y'all like that. I, I know in this world there are. There's some people like that. I, I, it's actually, it, actually, if, I, if you've ever met someone like this, and some of you might be this way. I don't know. I'm not trying to, I'm trying to call you out. But I, if you've ever met someone like this, it really kind of breaks your heart when they actually say, you know what? God wouldn't want me. I'm too far gone. There might be some of y'all that maybe because maybe we know about me, people know about it, maybe they don't, but maybe because of some addiction that you had or something in your past or somehow you've been broken, you may say, nobody wants me. Nobody can do anything with me. I want you to know that you're exactly who Jesus has come to say. You're exactly the kind of person Jesus wants. When Jesus walked on this earth, He went and He suffered with, and He walked with, and He talked with, and spent time with people that nobody else wanted. That's who Jesus loved. Now, on the other hand, I do want to pay attention very closely to the words, because the words in the text are important. Look at what He says in verse 26. He says, How that not many wives after the flesh. He says, not many wives. Not many, not many, not many. I want you to know that God does save some smart people, some strong people, and some wise people, and noble people. He does. 
And you might can name some people, maybe people you know. Smartest man I know, he say. You could maybe say that. And you might be right. I understand what he says. He does say not many, which means that he does save a few of them. But here's the point. Maybe you're in that category and you say, well, Matthew, I'm not stupid. My life's put together. I've got all this stuff. Do you not want to save me? I want you to know that you have to see that you must embrace God's thing, which is the cross. That's the difference here. You have to reject the world's thing, which is your intellect and your power and your significance and your wealth and your position. If you'll take those things, if you've got them, if the Lord has blessed you to have those things, thank Jesus if you've got them, but say those things are pointless to me. Paul says in another place, he says, I count those things as dung, as refuse, as something to throw away, something that's not worth even talking about. That's not important to me because I took it all and I say it's not important to me except for the cross. That's the thing I glory in. Not many, he says, that are wise. Not many that are mighty because most of us don't like to give up that stuff. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. One of the biggest curses on the United States of America has been our prosperity. Now, I'm saying that as a man who's wealthy beyond my own imagination. I could not even imagine. As a little boy growing up in a missionary family, I couldn't imagine having half of what I've got. And I say that that is one of the biggest curses to the American, to the American people. We've got so much. And, and I'm saying, I'll go even further and say, I think it's one of the biggest curses to the American church. That most of the people that come in here, and I know that we've got some folks who may live with lesser means. I understand that. And you may say, well, I'm one of them. I, well, I understand, okay? So I ain't talking to you. I'm talking to the rest of them then. The rest of you, you're sitting here with so much stuff. And, and, I'm, and there's nothing wrong with the stuff, but the problem is that that intellect that you have, that power that you have, that position that you have, and those possessions that you have, they will not save you. He says there in verse 29, he says that this is so because that no flesh will glory in his presence. There will come a day where we stand before God. We look him in the eye and we are standing there in everything that we've got. By the way, it ain't nothing. You've got nothing. You're not going to stand there and say, well, I have a good retirement, Lord. Now that's good, something's good for something, isn't it? Oh, Lord, I, I, I worked a really good job, and I got a great promotion. That's worth something, isn't it? I, Lord, I got all these degrees. I went to college so many times. That's so, isn't that great? Lord, I got the big house, and I got the beach house, and I got the mountain home. Isn't that great? I want you to know that those things account for nothing. In fact, if they count for anything, if they are an anchor, pulling you down under the weight of this world. Sinking you to the bottom. Damning your soul to hell. If you cling to them, you have to, please listen to me, if you're to be people of the cross as a church, as an individual, if you're to be people of the cross, we have got to say, thank you, Lord, for whatever you're giving me. I'll use it. I'll take it. I'll, I'll be appreciative of it. But if it goes away tomorrow, that's fine. I'm going to cling to the old rugged cross. 
that's what we have to hold on to. That none of these things, we have one thing, only one thing to take pride in. One thing and only one thing to count on for our hope and our meaning. And that is Jesus and Him crucified. That's it. That's what we have. We, as the people of the cross, are inherently foolish. We know that we're nothing apart from Jesus. But God also makes the people of the cross divinely amazing. Uh, look at me in verse 27. He says there that it's not many, in verse 26, it's not many that are, that are wise and all that, but then he says in verse, 20, uh, verse 27 that he's chosen the foolish things of this world. Who are the foolish things? The people of the cross. He's chosen those people to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world, the things that are despised, to, to bring the things that are not to bring to naught things that are. God prefers His chosen method to turn this world upside down, to take it and spin it on its head. What God's chosen method to do that, He could have saved people any way He wanted to. He could have saved anything He wanted to. He could have done anything He wanted to. Anyway, any way you look at it, God wins. There's no scenario in which God loses. He wins. He could have won any way He wanted to. There was no plan or formula that He had to do. He did it the way He wanted to. He says there that He chose. And what did He choose? He chose the foolish and the weak and the insignificant. That's what He chose. And He chose to use them to, as He said there, to confound worldly strength and wisdom. To confound it, to shame it, to undermine it, to humiliate it, to make it look stupid. That's what He chose to do. He's saying, I want you all, the whole world, the universe to know that my thing, the cross, my way, is better than anything this world has to offer. He chose to bring to naught the significance of the world. The world is significant in its own right. I can tell you, you talk to these politicians and they'll tell you how important they are. You talk to these, these uh, owners of businesses and owners of, of big corporations, they'll tell you how important they are. And what God's saying is, I'm going to take the things that are nothing, the ordinary, the useless, the, even the hated, the nobodies, I'm going to use them to wipe out, to abolish those things that think they have significance. He uses His church to undermine all of that. Well, <laughs> I just told y'all, y'all, a bunch of nobodies, and I recognize that. The Bible says, but I need you to understand that in Jesus, you are powerful. You are poised to do mighty things. Let me just read you a couple things. This is from Peter, 1 Peter 2 9. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Jesus says in John 14, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. I don't know if y'all know about the Gospels, but Jesus did some amazing things in the Gospels. And He said, that work, you're going to do it too. But He's not done. He says, and greater work than these shall He do. <laughs> I, I can tell y'all are just un unimpressed by what Jesus just said. Jesus just told me and you that all the stuff that we think of as amazing things, He is empowering His people to do that and then some. Jesus even said in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build my church, church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He 
you know that there is nothing in this world that the devil can throw at the church of Jesus Christ that will ever defeat it. In fact, we are actually in on the attack mode. We are in the position that we are going after the gates of hell itself, and those gates will not hold against the church of Jesus Christ. They will not hold because we are a powerful force, not because of what we are. Who are we? We're nobody. We're nothing. We have no power. But because we are people of the cross, we embrace God's thing. Because that's who we are. There is nothing, literally nothing, that can stop us on the mission that God has put us on. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. But church, I need y'all to see yourself as amazing indeed. I don't think you do. I'm trying to emphasize this one because I don't think you do. I don't think you understand that you are full of Christ's power and Christ's authority as long as you're on His mission. You need to understand that. Yes, we're nothing in ourselves, but because we get to serve the King, we can be honored to be and humbled that we get to do that and there's no door that's closed to us. It's all open to us as long as we're on His mission. Get excited about that. Let's make it change our priorities. I think our priorities in churches are so wrong. We're in this defensive posture. We're over here trying to figure out if we can do this and that. And look at the word your king has told you what to do. And he's told you, I'm with you always to the end of the world. It's all going to happen if you'll simply go and teach the gospel. If you'll simply go and tell them what I told you. There's nothing that's going to stop, but I think our priorities are out of whack. Our methods are out of whack. We think if we can entertain them to death, that somehow that's going to change their mind. They're going to like us better. If we look like them, think like them, talk like them, they're going to like us better. No! You've got something bigger than that. You've got something more powerful than that. There's only one thing, and one thing only, that we take pride in. One thing, and one thing only, that we can count on for hope. And that is Jesus. We'll do that. There is nothing that is out of reach that He wants us to do. The people of the cross are not only divinely amazing, but we are fully dependent as well. I want you to see this in um, verse 29, starting in verse 29. He says there that no flesh should glory in His present presence. So we need to understand that we don't have anything to boast of or anything to be proud of in ourselves. But, he says in the next verse, verse 30, but of Him are you in Christ Jesus. We don't have anything to boast of in ourselves, but God's made a way so that we've got something to be proud of. It reminds me of what Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 2. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, he just starts out telling us how big a sinners we are. You were dead in sin. You wanted to sin. You liked to sin. You sin every chance you get. Basically what he's saying. Then he says in verse 4, but God. God is a, it, it, it's a contrast. This is where you were, but God comes in and he changes the situation. But God, he says, he's rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. But God, even though we've got nothing to boast in of ourselves, but God made a way. But God opened the door. But God tore down the walls between us. But God gave us a reason, one thing to be glory in, have glory in. And he gave us, he says there in verse 30, that year in him Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom. God gave us wisdom. Make sure we understand that in the context here, he's been talking about everything foolish 
and weak and insignificant. That's who we are. But he says, I'm going to give you my thing. My thing is wisdom. My wisdom. And my wisdom is going to be personified. It's going to be contained. It's going to be completely held up in this person called Jesus. He is the essence, the very expression of God himself. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, and because He is God's wisdom, He contains, He is, He shows the world what God's thing is all about. We get to be, as He says there in verse 30, look what He says, but we are of Him, that of Him rather, of God, because God did this, are you in Christ Jesus? I don't think y'all are hearing me. God made a way. And because God made a way, I get to be in Jesus. What that means, Peter writes it this way, we are partakers of the divine nature. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? You get God. You don't just get to know Him. You get Him living in you. He's inside of you, empowering you, making you what you ought to be. That sin that easily besets you, and y'all can look all pious if you want to, but we all got something that we're fighting against every day, all day. And let me just tell you what that sin, you'll never defeat it on your own, but the Bible tells me in Romans chapter 8 and verse 13 that through the power of the Spirit, I can kill that sin. That sin I can't touch, but because I've got the Spirit inside of me, I cannot just fight it and get in the mud and wrestle with it. I can kill it. I can knock it out. It can take its head off because of what? God has done because I am in Christ. I get Him. I am in Him if I follow and I believe the message. And because I am in Him, I get His wisdom, He says there. Then there's three words that follow in verse 30. And these are three important words because this wisdom is described in these three words. I am in Jesus, so therefore I get His wisdom, which is I get righteousness. I have standing with God. I have been justified. My sins are no longer punished in me because they were punished in the cross. I look at the cross and know that every sin that I've ever committed and will ever commit, I can even think about committing, it has been paid for, it has been crushed in Jesus on the cross. I have righteousness. I have standing with God. He says that I have sanctification. I'm made clean. I'm made right. Not only is that sin paid for, thank Jesus, it's paid for but not only is my sin paid for, but that sin is gone. It is expiated. It is taken away from me. I no longer have it anymore. I don't carry it in myself. Jesus bore it on the cross. Are you listening to that? That Jesus, you're not only is it paid for. Thank you. I don't have the bill anymore. But that is no longer in me. I am sanctified. I am now a holy place where God can dwell. Do you understand the implications of that? When I say the Holy Spirit's in you, I don't mean you get up and walk around, run around the building and hoop and holler and speak in another language. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, your body is now a place where God can dwell because sin doesn't live there anymore. Sin isn't there anymore. Because if you go back to Leviticus, you go back to Leviticus, right? At the end of Exodus, God gives the, 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 the law to them, and then they tell them how to build this tabernacle where God's going to dwell, and Moses is standing outside of the tabernacle, and he's like, now what do I do, God? And God says, let me talk to you for a little bit. And he tells him in the book of Leviticus, let me tell you all the things you need to do to be clean so you can enter into my presence. You know all that stuff in Leviticus? Jesus took care of it all on the cross. 
It's all done so that His Spirit can dwell in you. There's no need for a place made with hands for the Spirit to come down and for us to offer sacrifices. It's all taken care of. He comes and lives in me. I get sanctification. I am holy. I can boldly enter into His presence. The writer of Hebrews says, not only have I have righteousness and sanctification, he says that I have rejection. I've been delivered. I've been set free. I no longer am in bondage to sin. Not only is that sin paid for, not only is that sin that I've done taken away from me so it's no longer in me, I don't have to do it any longer. He has broken those chains. I am not required. I am not bent that way. I am now fixed. I am now repaired. I am now set free to do exactly what God wants me to do. Will you see yourself, though, church, as dependent on Jesus for those things? I don't know if you can tell or not, but I get a little excited about those things. I wish y'all would. I ain't going to fuss at you too much about it, but I wish you would. I wish not only would get excited about it, but I wish more importantly get excited. I wish you would actually live out that, that that is the reality of your life. That you are dependent on Jesus, knowing that the only way you can even call yourself a church is because of what Jesus did on the cross. Knowing that the only way you as an individual in your family or as a church, as a corporate body, will ever make an impact on this community is because of what Jesus did on the cross. Knowing that the only way that you'll ever be free of the sins that affect you, that the only way your your family will ever be free of what hurts them and harms them is because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Because we have one thing, only one thing, to take pride in. Only one thing that we can count on. Only one thing that our hope is in. And that's Jesus and Him crucified. You've got nothing to be proud of. It sounds terrible coming out of my mouth, but it's the truth, y'all. We've got nothing to be proud of. We could make this church 20 times as big of a congregation as this. We could build buildings to the sky. And it wouldn't be worth me being proud of. We could have the most talented musicians on the planet perform on this stage and in this choir. We could have every program imaginable. That's not worth being proud of. Unfortunately, we're pretty pretty satisfied in ourselves because we can spout off a little Christianese. We can say the right Christian language in the right Christian places. We got a little financial success. We can act like we got our stuff together, even though we fall apart every time we're behind closed doors. But we can act like we got our stuff together and we're out in public. So we feel like we're we're pretty good. We're doing okay. But I want you to be get to that place where you know that ultimately you have nothing but sin and shame and weakness and brokenness. Because Jesus provides you. Right standing, purity, deliverance, salvation. When you get to that place, you know that you are what you are. And you have what you have. Because of Jesus dying on the cross to save you. You have one thing and one thing only to be proud of. Look what he says there in the verse 31. I can see this. As according as it is written, it's in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 22 and 24. It's where it comes from. He that glorious, let him glory in the Lord. 
He that glorious, let him glory in the Lord. One of my favorite verses, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. The verse that I look back on all the time. I got nothing to be proud of, nothing to glory in, except Jesus. We got nothing to be proud of except Jesus. 